0: If you brought your Bible, you can get it out and turn to Proverbs chapter 9. Uh, Of course, whenever I don't have a handout, I'm going to put all the scriptures on the screen for you. And you don't have to feverishly take notes or try to remember things because tomorrow morning it will be on the Internet. So if you miss something, you can go back and listen to it. Proverbs chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Now, how does this go for you when... When you uh, are trying to figure out where to dine, you know, where are we going to eat? I don't know. I don't care. But then as soon as I say something, well, not there. Well, I thought you didn't care. Anything. But that, the one thing I say, that's the one thing? No, but not that. Or we don't, in my family, we don't eat out very much. Uh, Actually, not well, we just don't eat out very much. But, uh, you know, when we eat out, we eat at my mother-in-law's house. That's say eating out, right? Amen. So, uh, but we don't eat out a lot. But when we do, if it never fails that if I get home and Lisa says, hey, we're going to go out to dinner or something, something. I go, where are we go?" And it will always be whatever I had for lunch. In other words, if I had Mexican for lunch, we're going out for Mexican. I'm going, really? I had that for lunch. It's always the same thing I I just had. Well, that's just a, a silly conversation, and it uh, really is meaningless because it doesn't really matter. There's no uh, long-term consequences to where we eat, I guess, unless we eat there too much. But other than that, it's really of no great consequence. Whereas in chapter 9 of Proverbs... Where to dine is of the utmost importance. So let's read. I'm going to read the entire chapter, 18 verses, and then we're going to take this apart and see what God has to say to us as we look at it. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word and we humble ourselves and say, Lord, this is your word spoken by you for us. We need to hear what you have to say in Proverbs chapter 9 tonight. And so, Lord, will you help us to have clarity and focus as we think through your perfect divine enduring word and may it accomplish in us what only it can and we will give you the credit and the praise and the glory for that. We need ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come and eat of my bread and drink of my wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in. The way of understanding verse 7 he who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you rebuke a wise man he will love you give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser teach a just man and he will increase in learning the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding for by me your days will be multiplied and the years of your life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you are, and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knowing nothing. For she sits at the door of her house on the seat of the high places of the city. And calls out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him come in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he who does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. Okay. So, Proverbs, especially the beginning of Proverbs, understand the first nine chapters of Proverbs are the introduction. After this chapter, there's a shift. But these first nine chapters are are nine poems, if you will. Nine uh, admonishments or pleas by, uh, by God to choose wisdom and to be wise. And as you read Proverbs, there are certain things that you begin to sense, especially when you read it over and over and over, and it begins to work its way into the depths of your heart and your soul. You begin to understand certain things that the book of Proverbs uh, takes for granted or assumes that we should understand about ourselves. One of those things is that the book of Proverbs teaches us that we are on a journey, that we're moving, that we're not stationary. We are always moving. The question is not, am I moving? That is not the question. The question is, where is the path leading me? Or what path am I on? We're always, always moving. You see, we're always sowing seeds today of our future self tomorrow. You cannot go through... You see, because a lot of times people... uh, tend to uh, sort of buck when I say that. And they think, well, like, you know, they, they feel very stationary in their life. And so maybe you tonight feel like you've been in the same place where you are for some time. And so you would say, I don't really feel like I'm moving. But here's what you need to understand. Movement in the book of Proverbs is connected to decisions. And you know what you did today? You made decisions today. You know what you did yesterday? You made decisions yesterday. And it doesn't matter how... Flat or boring or simplistic or monotonous you think your life is. You know what you're doing? Every day you're making decisions. And those decisions are moving you on a path. And what you're doing as you make decisions is you're in those decisions. You're sowing the seeds today that you're going to reap tomorrow. Because every decision is like a seed being sown. And reaping always follows, I mean, it always follows sowing, always, like night follows day or day follows night. They always come behind one another and God knows this and God cares about this and God speaks into this in multiple ways. And one of the ways He does this is He gives us the books of wisdom in the Bible. He gives us books like Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and Job." They're, they're wisdom books. They're to, to specifically designed to, to teach us how to live uh, better and wiser and more productive, to teach us how to, to teach us that we can have a great influence on where we're going on this path. You see, because here's the thing. Now, whether you, whether you want to embrace this or not, I want you to understand this tonight before we go any further. You're moving and you can't not move. You're moving. You cannot, no matter how hard you try, you cannot stand still. Because refusing to make a decision is a what? Exactly. You're moving. And you're going... One way or the other. And so not moving is not an option. And there are many things that you have zero control over. This is not one of them. You're moving and you have great input into where it is that you're going. And how it is that you're going to get there. And so really the question is, you know, a lot of people think that Solomon wrote all of the book of Proverbs, which is not true. Solomon wrote a lot of it, but he didn't write all of it. But with regards to Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the question that just, you know, jumps out to me every time I'm reading Proverbs or every time I'm thinking about Solomon is, here's somebody who is so wise that God used him to write most of the book of Proverbs. And yet... He finished his life as a fool and disgrace. He crashed and burned. First Kings chapter 11 tells us that he married hundreds of foreign women who served foreign gods. And it didn't take long before he started Worshipping the gods of these foreign women. And he even went further and started building altars and shrines in which to worship them. The Bible also gives him credit. Something that he today is not proud of. Credits him with the reason that the people of God split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. That wasn't a good thing. It wasn't a good season. And Solomon's the one credited with that. So if he's so wise, what happened? What should we understand about wisdom before we can study a chapter of Proverbs? We we need to understand some things about what we're talking about. What should we know about wisdom? What happened to him? Well, I think the simple way to say it is he didn't listen to his own words. Think about that. He knew what to do. He just didn't do it. It's not about what you know. It's about what you do with what you know. And Solomon is a painful Painful reminder of that. For example, in Proverbs 19, 27. Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. You know what you can't do? You can't stray from something you weren't once at, can you? You know what that verse says? That you can be right where wisdom is. You can be right where knowledge is and then you can stray from it. So what's the principle? Just because you're on the path of wisdom today doesn't mean you're going to be on it tomorrow. Just because you're on the path of wisdom today does not mean you're going to be on it tomorrow. You're moving. You're making decisions every day. A fool convinces himself that the decisions that he makes are unimportant or because he's made so many wise decisions in the past that this particular decision today doesn't seem to matter. No. Listen. You have to persevere in the faith. The Bible teaches the doctrine of perseverance. Second Peter chapter one. It's come up on the screen. Here's what the scripture says. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and virtue knowledge. You with me? Watch what happens. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. So what do we do? For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. There's a sobering warning to understand the necessity to persevere. So every book in the Bible, every book in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is written to point to, what's our Sunday school answer? Jesus. Are you dead? I mean, come on. Because i wake you up. I'm just calm right now. Let's try to keep it that way. It's good for my blood pressure. According to the Bible... When it comes to where to dine, there's only two choices. Not three, not 47 like in Gulfport, only two. So, here in Proverbs 9, in this poem, we get some instruction. This is going to build upon where the book of Proverbs started. You know, in in chapter 1, this is how the whole book starts. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Oh, I got these up here. There you go. King of Israel, verse 2. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. I mean, what value? You see that? To give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge, and discretion. Pooh, put a price on that. That's value right there. So when we get to chapter nine, we've been building from from those first words all the way to chapter nine. And here's how this is going to lay out. You can see in your Bible if you look at it. You you can see Proverbs is is such a the the way Proverbs is written is so magnificent it's it's just like it's like literary perfection and this is no different here in chapter 9 there you see that the first six verses give us a description of lady wisdom the last six verses give us a description of lady folly and so these two bookends you build in these, the first six, last six, but then in the middle, what you have is how to unlock and attain wisdom. In other words, what Proverbs 9 is calling us to do is to work our way from the ends back into the middle. I'll show you. These two ladies very similar. Lady Wisdom, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Now, you can't even go past the first line. You have to stop and think for a second. Okay. The number of seven in the scripture is the number of perfection. She has seven pillars. And so she has uh, she, she has this perfect house. And how did this house come to be? She, she has diligently worked to construct it. She's hewn out these, these seven pillars. It's perfect in every way. We also see how this house has, like any other house, is, is trying to set the stage for us to show us something. You know what a house does? A house shows us how order Evolves from chaos you ever seen like right down the street they just uh, poured the foundation to build a house and then what happens a, a big truck co- pulls up and starts unloading piles of wood and all sorts of different uh, bricks and mortar and this and that and it's just a whole bunch of chaos isn't it and that chaos becomes order All these little random parts become a beautiful house. Wisdom creates order out of chaos. Wisdom doesn't... See, ignorance thinks that there's no chaos. Wisdom understands that there's chaos, but is able to understand it in such a way as to bring order out of it. That's what wisdom does. That's what God does in creation. He takes the formless void and He creates beauty and order out of it by speaking merely the words of creation. He does the same thing in redemption. He takes the order, He takes the chaos and the, and the, and the depravity of our lives and He turns it into order and structure and security. He makes something ugly beautiful, doesn't He? Nobody's marveling at nothing. And then God makes it beautiful. Just He does the same thing in creation that He does in our lives. And there's a picture here of how order and beauty comes up out of chaos. Verse 2. She has slaughtered her meat. And she has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. So what does this tell us about her? Well, the first thing that jumps out at me is praise God, wisdom's not a vegetarian, amen? <laughs> Only a fool would think that man could live on lettuce and celery and. No. I'm not even going to say that word in church, it would just be wrong. But look at what it's telling us about her. She's, she's not lazy. She's diligent, isn't she? Look at She's slaughtered a meat. She's mixed her wine. She's done the things that need to be done. Verse 3, She's sent out her maiden. She cries out from the high places in the city, whoever is simple, let them turn in here. For him who lacks understanding, she says to him, come and eat of my bread and drink of my wine I have mixed. It's an invitation to any and all who would come. But but look closely at what's happening here. What What is the invitation? What is the qualifier of the invitation that wisdom makes, that lady wisdom lays before us? Anyone who comes is welcome, but who will acknowledge that they are lacking? Whoever's open to instruction. You see, this is, a, this is not a banquet for the sophisticated. It's not a high-end party for the proud. This banquet is open to anyone who would come and admit that they're lacking, but it's, it's not open to anyone. In particular, the door is slammed shut to those who would be unteachable. The unteachable aren't welcome here. It's a gathering for those who don't have it all together. It's a gathering for the humble. She says to the simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says, come and eat of my bread and drink of my wine that I've mixed. She's done all the things that needed to be done. And wisdom says, if you're open to correction if you're open to instruction, then you can not only sit at my table, but you can, you can dine here as often as you like. This isn't a one-time meal. See, the book of Proverbs wants you to understand, you think that you made a decision earlier today about where you would dine. The book of Proverbs would disagree with that. The book of Proverbs would say that you've made a decision of where to dine probably 15 or 20 times today. That you've made a lot of decisions today. And every one of those decisions was a decision that where to dine could have weighed into, could have played a role Because it's an ongoing invitation. Because it's an ongoing need. It's not we, we, we face decision after decision after decision. And are, who, who, who are we going to? Are we going to sit at the table of wisdom? Or are we going to sit at the table of folly? What are we going to do? Where does the invitation lead? Look at verse 6. This is the key to understanding wisdom. Forsake foolishness and live. And go in the way of understanding. Now understand this very important principle. To forsake foolishness and live is a plea for us to understand that the invitation is not to luxury. It's not simply to be practical with information. It's not simply to make a decision that's, that's pragmatic, that works best in your situation or whatever the case may be it's not about it's not about comfort it's not listen it is an invitation to live or to die to live or to die you see because the bible says by accepting this invitation you live Therefore, declining this invitation leads to death, according to the last verse of the chapter. Wisdom is calling, calling, calling. You see, as you're moving, you're deciding, you're moving. And here's what I want you to understand. Life is like walking down a street. You can't not walk down the street because life forces you to keep moving. And so as you move down the street, here's what's happening. As you're moving down the street, voices are calling to you continuously. Lady Wisdom is calling to you and she's inviting you in. And Lady Folly is calling to you and she's inviting you in. And you hear these voices that are continually barraging you and coming into you. And you're deciding... Over and over and over, day in and day out, week after week, after month, after year, after decade. And you're listening and you're deciding. The question is do we believe that? Do we believe it? Wisdom is saying, I have something far better. Far better than the other choice. But the other choice is saying, Well, I have something that's good and wonderful and enjoyable. And which voice will we listen to? Which voice will we heed? Who will we believe? It's a moment-by-moment decision of whose house we're going to enter, whose table we're going to sit at, whose food are we going to dine upon, whose voice are we going to listen to. So that's the first six. Let's look at the last six. Look at verse 13. A foolish woman is clamorous. I love that word. She is simple and knows nothing. Clamorous. What does that mean? She's loud. She's obnoxious. I don't like loud. I mean, I like when I'm loud. I don't like loud, obnoxious. You notice, unlike Lady Wisdom who exhibits beauty and order. What, is, what do we learn about Lady Folly right off the bat? She's noisy and unrestrained, isn't she? She's a little bit unbridled. She's She lacks boundaries. Verse 14, she sits at the door of her house. On the seat of the high places of the city. To call to those who pass by to go straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let them turn in here. For as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now did you catch that? Because there's some striking similarities but there's also some striking differences. Did you notice that Lady Folly has prepared nothing? Did you notice that? Nothing. She hasn't prepared her meat, mixed her wine. She says the exact same things, but she hasn't done anything. She hasn't prepared anything. All she has to offer, she doesn't have. Listen, we're, we, we, wa- we, we were introduced to Lady Wisdom. She's carving up choice meat. What is Lady Folly offering? Bread and water. You get the prison diet. At Lady Folly's house. And it's bread and water that she didn't do anything to prepare. It's stolen. Somebody else did it. Did you notice the invitation in verse 16 is exactly identical verbatim to verse 4? Exactly. But then the very next verse in verse 17... Drastic difference. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. And here's the thing. Doesn't that sound... Isn't that that's such a fancy way to say, Hey, wait a minute. It's still just bread and water. That's all it is. It's trying to say it in such a way as to deceive us and to disguise it. What she does is she speaks half-truths and uses deception and deceit sin is sweet it is pleasant for a moment it is secret for a moment but what she doesn't tell us is the rest of the story that in the end is repulsive and painful and leads to death do you notice how skilled lady folly is at? at sweeping the connection between sin and death under the rug and keeping it hidden so we won't notice it and trying to disguise everything to make it look like something that it's not. She's inviting us in as her victims, not as her guests to sit at her table and to raise our glass and to enjoy and toast to our own demise and our own death. You see, because verse 18 at the end it says, but he does not know that the, that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. See, I think verse 18 is one of the most intriguing passages in this chapter. Here's why. I feel like I could do an entire night just on verse 18. Isn't it true? Do you know any fools? Boy, I do. Isn't it true about fools? People that are on the pathway to death? It's so obvious to us Their demise. Their imminent demise. And yet. We're so good at. Taking a passage like this and and seeing folly in the lives of other people. And immediately deflecting what this is saying. To people's. Lives that are obviously disintegrating and riddled with foolishness, aren't we? Probably there are people in in most all of your minds right now. But look at this in the mirror. Instead of doing that, which there is obvious benefit to that because you can be a blessing to other people but I think the primary intention here is that we would look in the mirror and ask ourselves am I on the path of folly are you It's hard to see foolishness in ourselves. It's easy to try to overlook it and to try to disguise it and to try to deny it. And there's a warning in verse 18 not only to us and our, our need to be diligent in our self-exploration but also in helping and guiding those around us. But we can't do that until we've looked rightly and, and purely in the mirror and looked at ourselves. And here's the warning that's so clear in verse 18. If the end were obvious... Would anybody be on the path of folly? No. They wouldn't. It's not obvious. Do you think? Because, again, resist the temptation to think of someone else. Because the person that you're thinking of or the people that you're thinking of, ask yourself this question. Do you think that they woke up one morning and said, do you know what I'm going to do today? I think today I'm going to throw my life away. Do you think they consciously said to themselves, do you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to make a horrible decision with lasting consequences. Do you think that they made a conscious decision to walk down the path of foolishness? No, they did not. It's deceitful. It's disguised. It's tricky. It's slippery, which is all the more reason why you could very well be sitting here tonight walking down the path of destruction and convinced, convinced that what you want to do with what you're hearing tonight is to help someone else when in fact it is for you. Maybe what you're doing is you're not giving much thought at all to the decisions that you're making. You're just making them. Maybe you look at life as a journey to where you just let life come to you. You're not going to overthink it. You're going to take the lazy river approach to life. Well, good luck with that. Because where do you think it's going to lead you? Where do you think the path of least resistance is going to lead you? Where do you think the subtle habits that started for most people in their childhood with a natural desire to avoid pain and difficulty, but with just a few nuances by the enemy in your life. Maybe they used your parents. Maybe they used your siblings. Maybe they used your circumstances. Maybe your enemy used whatever it was. And what started out as just a natural desire to avoid difficulty has led to a lifelong quest For the easy way. For the shortcut. You know, sometimes there's a job that needs to be done. And there's an easy way to do it. There's technology available. There's a smart way to work. And you know what the Bible would say to that? Sometimes it's good to get out there and do it the hard way. It's good. It's good to struggle. It's good to suffer. It's good. The Bible would warn the person among us. who is always trying to finagle a simpler, more streamlined way to accomplish whatever it is that's before them. That's not always the best path. Whenever we want to know what we ought to do, we only need to look one place, right? How do, I, how, how, do I, how do I make those decisions? How do I do that? Well, if you want to know, you see, you shouldn't listen to me. If you want to know, you know, Pastor Tony, that doesn't sound very, I, I'm confused by that. I mean, if there's a simpler, smarter way to do it, shouldn't I do it that way? Well, sure, that makes perfect sense to your secular, warped way of thinking. Let me ask you a question. Is that how God does it? Does God always make it easy for you? Or does God intentionally put hardship before you? To strengthen you? To make you better? To equip you? To build you? So you see, you you learn... What you ought to do based on, well, what does God do? How does God operate? What is God's character? What is God's nature? That will tell you what ought to be your goals and your priorities. You see, the, the goal of folly, listen, it is all trickery and sleight of hand. It's to make the land of the dead look like the land of the living. It's to make the land of the dead look like where all the action is and all the fun is and all the cool people are. It's to make the way of wisdom seem boring and monotonous and restrictive and lackluster. It's constantly trying to convince you That the way of folly is innocent. It's exciting. It's invigorating. We live in a culture where folly, the enemy works double, triple time. Trying to make folly seem acceptable and normal. Now, if all we had was the first six verses and the last six verses, we would, we'd have something. We'd have some information. We'd have some direction. We'd have some instruction. But I don't think we would have quite what we need, which is why we have the middle of this chapter. Because what we really need is we, we, need, to, we need to expose and see the difference between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. But then before we can walk away from this text, we need to know what's the key to making the right decision? What's the key to dining in the right house at the right table? Verse 7, he who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, but he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. So what we see here is that there's danger that lies in the fact that as we read these passages, we see that there are people who are scoffers. They're scoffers. Am I a scoffer? Are you a scoffer? What is a scoffer? A scoffer is someone who scoffs at things. It means that they refuse to be corrected. They're unteachable. They're the ones that are unwelcome at the table of wisdom. They scoff. You know why they scoff? Because they're easily offended. They're always uh, offended by things. They, they bristle all the time and get wounded and hurt at the idea that someone might be giving them direction or correction. Here's how I always know a scoffer. Because scoffers do a lot of things and they, they show themselves in a lot of ways. But the one way that I always interact with a scoffer is that scoffers have a problem with authority. That's the key to the scoffer. You see, they're unteachable. They don't take correction. You can't, but their issue is in submitting to authority. You see, it's it's not that there's no place at at wisdom's table for the scoffer. It's even worse than that. It's that they don't even want to be there. Do you know why they don't want to be there? Because they don't think they need to be there. Because they they are confident in their belligerence. Scoffers, they hate nothing more than wisdom being brought into their midst. They cannot stand it. You have a conversation with a scoffer and they scoff, scoff, scoff and when they finally shut their mouth you lay a pearl of wisdom out before them and it just infuriates them. They get mad. To which I always say, why are you getting mad? Why are you offended by this principle? As if it's somehow directed at at only them. They give themselves away. Churches are full of scoffers, you know that? Full of scoffers. Scoffers Scoffers love Bible studies. They love Bible studies. They love to sit with their little book open and listen to somebody go on and on and on and on and on. And they love it. You know what they hate? They hate community. They hate transparency. They like general information. They don't like people that meddle. They don't like people that make you, you know, that force you to look at yourself. They don't like that. They hate community. They run from community. But they love to sit in a row next to 20 other people in a Bible study. They love that. Because they can hide there. And underneath, they just bristle up against. And so what they do is they just deflect everything that they hear. It doesn't matter what Bible study it is. It doesn't matter what. They just deflect it on. Boy, I'm so glad so and so's here, and I'm so glad they're here, and they need this so much, and wasn't this good, and isn't this wonderful? Meanwhile, they ain't nothing changed. They reject authority. They're unteachable. They don't change. They don't grow. They're bitter, and they scoff. They love good information. But you'll never hear them talk about their struggles. Never. You should be very suspicious of people who don't have struggles. Because they're scoffers. Look at the second half of verse 8. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Look at verse 9. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. Now this is super helpful. A wise person clearly understands that we are a work in progress. Do you see that? Do you see the momentum of these verses? Do you see the stagnation of the description of the scoffer? And do you see the movement of the description of the wise person? A wise person understands that until the day Jesus comes, you know what? We're growing. We're, God's not finished with us. We're a work in progress. That every day is a new opportunity to learn. Every mistake is an opportunity to learn something. Every hardship is an opportunity to grow. Every victory is an opportunity to become more humble. Everything is worthwhile. That's what a wise person understands. There's always more growth to be had I love when people come into my office and they sit in my office and they look around and they go have you read all these books well what else would I be doing with them what do you think I do hold them and pet them like a kitty cat What do you do with all your spare time? Watch television? How's that going for you? You see, the thing is, a wise person knows that he's never arrived. That there's always something new to learn. There's always something new. There's always an opportunity that You wake up every day and realize, you know what I need to do today? I need to grow today. That's what I need to do. I need to grow today. Not physically. I don't need to grow that way anymore. But what I need to grow is mentally and spiritually. I need to grow that way. Every day. I need to learn to be a better person, a better pastor, a better husband, a better father, a better neighbor, a better friend. There's movement in the understanding of the wise. Now, we skip verse 10 and we go to verse 11. We'll come back. Verse 11 says, For by me your days will be multiplied, and your years of life will be added to you. And if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you will bear it alone. Now, here's another clue into some of the things I've already said about all this, because it, it all You have to take it in its totality to understand what's going on here. So here's clearly the difference between wise people and scoffers. See, on one hand, apart from community, guess what? You're always going to struggle to obtain wisdom. Wisdom comes in community. 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 To isolate yourself is to be a fool. Isolation will lead you to foolishness. Isolating yourself puts you in a very vulnerable state because you know who is always present when you isolate yourself? You. And guess who's not trustworthy? You. And guess who can be convinced of anything? You. I was explaining to somebody this morning during Sunday school. I was explaining to them how unbelievable my capacity is to convince myself of anything. And they were looking at me kind of strange. You know, because I didn't want to just come out and say, well, I'm really talking about you, but let's talk about me for a second. So I said, do you know how I do that? It's amazing. Just keep telling yourself the same thing over and over. Just keep doing it. And guess what happens? It doesn't take you long before pretty soon you forget what was once true and you start believing. Just keep saying it. You just repeat it over and over and over. And guess what? Pretty soon you just start believing it. You know, that doesn't work in community. Not good community. Good community is going to wage war against that. It's going to stop that from happening. See, here's the critical principle to understand about the importance of gospel community. The harder it is to hide. The harder it is to hide. The greater wisdom will be multiplied. You want to be in relationships with people that do not let you hide. You want to be in relationship and community with people that when they say how you're doing, how are you doing, and you say fine, they go, what does that really mean? What, what do you really mean by fine? What's really going on? How are you doing? How's your marriage? How's your life? How's your job? How's your how's your Walk with Jesus. What's going on with you? Because once you learn to experience community, here's what happens you don't have any time or patience or. I just don't want to spend any time with all the I'm fine people. I just don't want to. It's pointless, it's useless. Don't you ever know when you're in that conversation when when everything's just fine and you're just thinking to yourself, like, this isn't even real? What are we even doing? You're not fine. I'm not fine. We're not fine. We're not. You hide, you perish. You're moving in a direction. So if you're sitting in a room with a bunch of other people and everybody's listening to someone or something and then when it's done, you get up and you walk out, you may be surrounded by scoffers. In fact, you may be a scoffer. I would way rather be in a room where we talk about what's really going on. What does this truth cause me to need to do? To interact with it, to deal with it, to address it, to be honest about it. Have you ever noticed that in a, in a room of gospel community that 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 one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. One person opens up and then it becomes... And I don't mean this ongoing gushing about... I'm not talking about prayer requests where everyone's talking about everybody else and it's all just a big diversion. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you and me sitting together face to face around the truth and saying, hey... What is this truth causing us to to do? What is it asking us to to think? How How is it peering into my heart and exposing the things in me that aren't right? What does God want me to do in light of this? Wisdom is impossible to obtain alone. It just is. It is personal, yes. And it is internal, yes. But you're not going to get it alone. You're just not. I guess I'll just keep saying this over and over and over and over. But I just feel like it's so obvious. The only person who ever lived who didn't need any help with anything who already knew everything chose to live in community with 12 other people that ought to tell you something verse 10 let's go to verse 10 which is the center If we start at the front and work in and start at the end and work in, where do we end up? Right here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There's the pinnacle of the whole chapter right there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's not the first time you've heard that. Of course it's not. But here's what's interesting. Try this out. Why don't you ask a group of people, what is the fear of the Lord? And watch the answers that you get. Watch the variety of opinions about what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, what the fear of the Lord is not is it's not the Fear of an angry God who's waiting for you to step out of line so he can smash you. Well, that's not what it's talking about. But that's still not helpful because what we need to know is what is it? The fear of the Lord is... It's a reverence, a humility, and a love for god that lead us to obedience it is a reverence a humility and a love for god that lead us to obedience you cannot fear the lord And not obey Him. But you can strive to obey Him without fearing Him. Without wisdom. You can try. It won't work, but you can try. People do it all the time. People try to obey God in certain areas of their life so that because they think it will inde- it will indebt God to them so they'll do so God will do other things to them. You see, think about it, people will try to obey God's laws of generosity because they, not because they love God, not because they care about the things God cares about, but because they don't want God to curse them or they feel like if they if they're generous to God God's going to be generous to them so all they're interested is God being generous to them so they'll try to be generous to him and you know what the God does it's nullified nullified because the bible says that God will not accept anything given by compulsion but only that which is given from a free heart right yes but people do it all the time people come to church only and specifically because they want God not to curse them or, or to judge them or to hammer them or whatever it is. So, or they, so they come just thinking that by being there, they're pleasing God and that God's going to be indebted to do good things to them. So they, That is someone who's trying to obey God without fearing him. It won't work. It's impossible. You can't sustain it even if you try. The fear of the Lord is where wisdom begins. And it is completely different. It's reverence and love and humility that lead me to obey God. You see, this is what wisdom does. Wisdom doesn't say, Wisdom doesn't say, Are you doing what God commanded you to do? See, some of you think that's what wisdom says. Wisdom's not saying that. Wisdom is not saying to you tonight, are you doing what God's commanded you to do? That's not what wisdom's asking. What is wisdom asking you tonight? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why? Wisdom's not saying, congratulations, you're here tonight. Wisdom is saying, why are you here? Why did you get up and get in your car and drive to church tonight? Why did you do that? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why are you generous? Why? 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 That's what wisdom wants to know. Why? What's the motivation? What's the reason behind it? The Bible teaches that God judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. The Scripture will teach you the knowledge of the character and nature of God will teach you and illustrate to you that God is about the reason behind what you're doing. Are you doing those things because you have a reverence for God, a humility towards God, a love for God that drives you to obey? That's the fear of God. That's where wisdom lies. Why? 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 The guys in my D group are so sick and tired of hearing me say that. Every time we read the scripture, I look at them and go. And they go, well, this and this and this. And I say, why? Why? Don't tell me what you're doing. Tell me why you're doing it. Why did you do that? They'll say, well, I did this. And I'll go, why? They're so sick of that. For a year, I've been wearing them out every single week. Why, 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 why? Because that's profitable. That's where wisdom lies. I don't want to hear about all your diligence and your discipline and your organization and your, I could care less about any of that. I want to know why. Why do you do that? Because you know what it exposes? It exposes a world full of people that do a lot of good things because it makes them feel good about themselves because it makes them feel safe and secure because it, fe- it makes them feel empowered by all their controls and all their mechanisms and all their it's folly church is filled with people that have a lot of regimen and discipline it's all folly folly and you think you're so smart but you're a scoffer Why do you do that? Because you fear God? That's wise. Because you have a reverence for Him and a love for Him and a humility. You see, without reverence, love, and humility, there's no wisdom. God created us and He made us. And He gave us this gift the book of Proverbs. So what do you think the question is that I'm asking? Why? Why, God, why did you give me this book? Why did you give? You see, I'm not just going to go, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stand up here and ramble on for an hour about Proverbs chapter 9 tonight. No. The first thing I'm going to do is say, God, why did you give us Proverbs chapter 9? Why? Why? Why is it profitable for for me to talk about it for an hour? Why? What is the purpose behind it? And then God begins to speak into that void and say, because I made you, Tony. I made you. And I have a vision for your life. I want things for you that you don't necessarily want, that you don't necessarily know about. I have things for you that you have yet to discover and to know. You need this in you. I've given this as a gift because I love you. Because you're not done. You're not complete. You haven't arrived. You haven't made it. I've given this to you because it will bring balance out of the chaos of your day. It'll bring order out of confusion. Just quickly, reverence. What does it mean to have reverence? Very simple. If you have reverence for somebody, do you know what you do? You listen closely to what they say. That's reverence. You pay attention when they speak. That's reverence. Love. What does it look like when a person loves God? It's very simple. Very simple. You know how you know if you love God? You put Him first. You know what you do? You put first what you love. That's why the world's full of people who put themselves first. Because that's what they love. Do you know how you love God? Because you put Him first. If you don't put Him first, you don't love Him. Reverence means you listen closely to what they say. Love means you put Him first. Humility. What does that mean? How do you know? If you have humility towards God. It's very simple. Humility towards God means that I never forget how much I need Him. That I'm always aware of my dependence upon Him. That I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, apart from Him, I can do nothing. You listen to what he says, you put him first, and you're continuously aware of your need for him reverence, love, and humility. So that's it? Or is it? Or is there one more thing? If every book in the Bible, as I said earlier, is written to point us to one place, then that must mean this book of the Bible is written to point us one place. This chapter is written to point us one place. And that same place is always Jesus. And how does it point us to Jesus? You know, Jesus didn't die for the you that has it all together. He didn't die for the you that always chooses wisdom, did he? You know what he did? He died for you in the midst of your folly. He died for me in all of my failure and all of my sin and all of my pride. He didn't die for the me who always makes the right choices. That's comforting. Because I know enough about myself to know that I was born into this world with a default for folly. Just like you. Our default mechanism is always to folly, isn't it? Yeah, we started out broken. And we haven't become less broken. We just become more broken. So he responded to that brokenness and that nature of folly. And what did he do? You see, what did wisdom do? Wisdom built the perfect house and hewned out seven pillars and prepared her meat and mixed her wine and invited people to come and dine. And what did Jesus do? He built the perfect house. Seven perfect pillars. Matthew chapter 22 says this, And Jesus spoke to them again in parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out servants to call all those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. And again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all the things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and they went on their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled. With guests. But when the king came in. To see the guests. He saw one man. One there. Who did not have on his wedding garment. So he said to him. Friend. How did you come in here. Without a wedding garment. And he was speechless. And the king said to the servant. Bind him hand and foot and take them away and cast them into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. It's an exact depiction of wisdom and folly and their calling. And you know what wisdom does? It calls to all of us. Will we listen? are we too busy with other things? We forsake the one who has built the perfect house and set the perfect table and invite us to come in and dine as often as we like. But we're too busy. We have other things to do. We have other details we need to attend to. So oftentimes we have so many other personal necessities that we have to deal with and do. And so we're unteachable. We scoff at the invitation, don't we? Many are called. Few are chosen. Many are invited. But few come in. And the one man who comes and tries to enter without the wedding garment. The one singular last lesson about the one who tried to enter his own way. He didn't want to wear what was provided by the host. He wanted to do it his way. He scoffed at the wedding garment. Why would I wear that when what I have is just fine? the mirror. Look in the mirror and ask yourself, am I on the way of wisdom or am I walking on the way of folly? Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for it. We receive it as a gift. And when it